every person that we meet who's cared for a loved one has a story to tell. And they're all so very similar with an overarching theme that we don't know what we don't know. So what we really want families to do is see the journey in front of them so that they can anticipate and plan ahead rather than be in this constant state of firefighting mode. There's no way around it. Caring for a loved one with dementia is not for the faint of heart. We don't know what we don't know, and often families focus so much on the person with dementia that they forget to keep their eyes on the family member managing care, which can be catastrophic. In this podcast, we'll help you become more proactive and remind you to focus on yourself. We will share challenges and wins and guidance from professionals at every step in the journey of caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's and other dementias. Welcome to the Eye on the Caregiver podcast. We are so glad to have Nicole McMonagle-Knight with us today. Nicole is the founder of Dementia Care Connections and has spent the last 20 years in healthcare, primarily in the field of aging. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm glad to be here. So, Nicole, uh, we know that Dementia Care Connections offers support services to family caregivers and care professionals to maintain and improve quality of life for their loved ones living with dementia. You know, today, what we really want to focus on is cognitive assessments, and in particular, the BCAT test system that you use. Michelle, did our dad go? We, we never did a BCAT or anything like that. I know, I know that mom did something with dad very, very early on, but it wasn't BCAT, was it? I don't think it was. And it was also done at the neurologist as part of the diagnostic testing that was done. Gotcha. So Nicole, can you give us a brief overview of the BCAT test system and other assessments you use? Absolutely. So the BCAT test system is part of the BCAT approach. It was developed actually from Dr. Monsbach in, in Maryland many years ago. And as part of the test system itself, it's looking at different tools to cognitively assess. So when we talk about cognitive assessments, it's looking at the big picture. What's going on with you know, anxiety and depression? What's going on with executive functioning, memory, judgment, and practical judgment, and seeing where the challenges or impairments are to the brain? We utilize that with a lot of our clients, and it's helpful as a tool to not only just get a sense of what's going on in the brain, but also as a way to help see how we can engage their loved one when we're doing our engagement visits. So Nicole, we find, and I'd be very interested in your thoughts on this too, there continues to be a lot of misunderstanding around the early signs of cognitive impairment. And what I mean by that is so many think that it's just a normal part of aging. And for that reason, we find that families don't always seek a diagnosis early in the process. It usually comes much later when they're in crisis and they finally, you know, seek that diagnosis. So how can cognitive assessments be used as an important tool and and why would that be important to families? Well, it's interesting you say that about a lot of times families waiting to seek a diagnosis. They it's really putting the, the reality right in front of them. We also don't really know what's going on in the brain is it it being affected by other systems as well. So when we look at cognitive assessments, it is an important tool. We obviously want families to consider getting a full workup first to make sure that there's not something going on metabolically and ruling everything else out. But when you look at a cognitive assessment, it helps create a good baseline of where things are today. And when I say today, it's really that snapshot of time. Because I can take the same cognitive assessment tomorrow 
and and maybe the score is slightly different. So it's giving us really a brief snapshot of what's going on today. We can use these assessments uh, to kind of build the picture, paint the picture of what's going on in, in the brain and, and take that to the physician so they can try to rule everything else out. I do get a lot of families that are very nervous about it. They're very nervous about having their loved one go to the doctor to get everything else ruled out. It's a very scary conversation for them. And this is a nice, gentle way to just look and see, well, let's, let's see what's going on with our brain right now and in a very non-threatening atmosphere. So why do you think that they are nervous about going to the doctor? I mean, what's the feedback you've gotten from them? I think there's a stigma attached to it when it's involving the brain. So if there's something wrong with our heart or our knee or any other part of our body, people aren't hesitant about going to the doctor. But there's some reason about the brain that just changes things. I think it changes what's going to happen in the future. There's so many unknowns. And so families are a little bit also hesitant about having those conversations. You know, if you have something wrong with your heart, you wouldn't jump to look at any type of treatment. But when you talk about the brain, there's just this different, this different entity attached to it. And people have a hard time really grasping that. Uh, something wrong with the brain, okay, there's something wrong with the brain. Let's, let's work to try to improve it and at least improve quality of life. Well, I think it's definitely true in society today. We're getting better, but have a long way to go in all aspects of brain, you know, even, you know, mental illness and things like that. I think that ultimately, you know, people kind of put their head in the sand a little bit that having your brain affected just seems so affecting that maybe they, they just don't want to deal with it. I think so. There's that term called pro prognostication. I learned about it several years ago. Not everybody wants to know what's going to happen to them. I do. I always want to know. So that, but I'm very different. If there's something going on, there's oftentimes people don't want to know what's going to be happening next and don't want to know what that finality part of it. From my understanding, the BCAT assessment looks at more than just memory. Is that right? That's correct. It looks at the multifactorial approach. So it's looking at executive functioning. We're also looking at uh, cognition, uh, attention span as well working memory. There's, there's multiple aspects to it. So you talk about it measures all these different things. Why is that important? Right? Like, so if you, you're talking to a family about BCAT, you know, why is it important to look at executive function as well as memory and all these other areas? So I think it's important to understand first what is executive functioning. I mean, executive functioning, it refers to a set of skills. So the skills are talking about planning ahead, meeting goals, self-control, different aspects to there. So being able to drive takes a lot of executive functioning. It's being able to go from one step to another step to another step, stop what you're doing to move on to the other step. So when we look at multi-step approaches, which is pretty much everything we do in our lives, to brushing our teeth, eating breakfast, to getting dressed, to driving, to even more complex things like flying an airplane, I mean, there's all these different things that your executive functioning is doing. So it's important to understand what's going on there and where things are with your executive functioning. Because as we find out, if there is an impairment in executive functioning, it's essentially showing the cascade for what's to come and, and where, where the challenges are going to be in everyday life. So that's super interesting, right, Michelle? Because like in the context of like our experience, Dad was definitely forgetting things and getting more forgetful, but he actually had a pretty high executive function. He would go drive and he would go out in the wood shop and he would make things, right? And because he was still able to do that, I think 
we were probably a little bit hesitant to start seeing him on his way or probably already experiencing early Alzheimer's. So that's a really interesting point. I agree. You know, I think also when you see some of this, like a a person who drives or our dad, you know, we weren't looking at the fact that he'd been driving since he was what 16 and he had been out in his wood shop. That was his thing muscle cell memory. And, you know, that also comes into play. But what we started to see was, yes, he could drive his car that he always drove. But if his car, if the keys were, he couldn't find the keys to his car, he would not take my mom's car because he did not have that ability to, you know, put all the pieces together. He just did it out of like muscle cell memory. He would get in the car. He knew exactly how to work that automobile, but he didn't know how to adjust mirrors and do all the things. He just got in and did what he always did, right? One of the things I find that's interesting is families say to me all the time, well, they're just getting in their car. They know how to drive. They can drive down the street to go to Giant or whatever grocery store their choice is, and they're, they're fine. They know how to get their way back. And I said, well, what if there's a roadblock that day or a detour? Could they find their way back then? Or you know, it, just because, like you said, if you if you can drive your own car, then you go into a situation where there's a stick shift. You know, if I were put in a situation right now with a stick shift, it's going to take me a little bit of time to rework to figure out how to operate from one step to another and do it all in sync to keep going. Um, your reflexes change, as, as, especially as the brain's changing here, too. So that also takes into play. Uh, but as far as the the roadblock that day or detour you're taking, can they navigate that? Absolutely. And I think that's when families tend to kind of get into that a little bit of denial because maybe we saw the signs, but we would watch him drive or walk, walk out in the wood shop and do something. And then, then we would step back and be like, Oh, he's just having a bad day or he's just getting older. And I think it happens really across the board. Would you agree, Sean? Yeah, this is just, bringing back so many memories. I don't mean to harp on driving, but it was such a big deal for us. And I remember my mom would call us and say, dad took the car again. She'd be crying and upset. And it got to the point where I had to go down there. I hit a cell phone in his car so we could track him. But it wasn't ever like, oh, dad's driving. That's a really bad thing. It was like, we don't know where dad's going, but we never really thought about like, you know, cognitively, should he even be driving? Because he was always a good driver. It wasn't until he got in a car accident where, remember, he rear-ended a, a band of Girl Scouts. And I think that, that was when we were like, you know what? We got to stop dad from driving. Before it was like, well, as long as we know where he's going and he's just going to the library, which is a mile away. All right. We, okay. We're good. We know where he's at, right? If we need to get him, we can go get him. But yeah, this is super interesting. It's bringing back all kinds of memories. I'll tell you what, it's, it's human nature to to not act on anything until really we're facing a decision to make a decision or or to act. It's just human nature. We can plan all we want for things to happen, um, or we could say, oh, we'll do something about it when this happens. It's just human nature that we do that and wait. Um, I'll tell you a lot of times something has to happen in the sense that now you've got really a classic case of like a group of Girl Scouts that there was an accident involved or hit another person or a really far extreme, you end up, you know, something happens to another person. There's a many times I've run across in my career where they didn't know where their loved one was for a long time until they get the traffic tickets from running red lights all throughout the city throughout the day. 
uh, get those weeks later that they can really pinpoint and map. So driving, I find, is one of the most difficult conversations to have. It, I find that it, it's, a, it's a lack of independence that you're taking away from them, from a, from a grown adult. And just it, there's so many different factors in that own conversation as well. Uh, which I like about the BCAT because there also is a part to it that's a driver assessment. It's a self-driver assessment part that I like to use a lot with families. Or I usually ask the person who's living with a memory impairing disease or suspected memory impairing disease. And then I also ask the family on their own to go through to see and then match them and see how they compare. It's, it's really interesting. I think that we, this is another issue that happens when you're like long distance uh, adult children. You know, my mom, our mom didn't really like confrontation. So we would say, you have to take the keys away. You have to take the keys away. And she would take the keys away from the bowl by the door and put them in the drawer in the kitchen. You know, he would find them in 15 minutes. He'd just go around looking until he could find the keys. And I think um, whether it's denial or just, you know, as adult children with our own families, we're so busy and we have our own things going on that I think we... We want things to be okay a little while longer because we have things going on and we don't necessarily know what we can do from long distance. And so we tend to, you know, think, oh, he's at, as long as we know where he is, he's not going to be like wandering the neighborhood in the woods. You know, he's at the library. We tended to use that as a kind of a crutch, which knowing now everything we know, obviously we would do things different, which is why we're having this conversation, right? We never had cognitive assessment done on our dad. We never had anyone come into their home to help engage him or or anything like that. So every person that we meet who's cared for a loved one has a story to tell, and they're all so very similar with an overarching theme that we don't know what we don't know. So what we really want families to do is see the journey in front of them so that they can anticipate and plan ahead rather than be in this constant state of firefighting mode. So do you find it, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but I'm going to ask you again, do you find it difficult to get families to do the assessment or is it once they've contacted you, is that the harder, is that the harder piece? I think the harder piece is them picking up the phone. There's clearly a reason why they pick up the phone and they want to know more. So oftentimes family, depending on the dynamic of the family, if it's the adult child, they're the ones who want the assessment, but they basically put it back on you saying, okay, we want this done. How do we let this happen? How, what conversation pieces are we having with our loved one? Spouses find it a little more difficult because here they are, you know, as they married each other, they took that vow for better or worse, and we don't know how that worse could get. And so for them, it's a different dynamic shift in, in their relationship. And so I really help families through that conversation. But oftentimes, adult children, they, they want to get the assessment. They're, they're eager to know. They, they want to help their parent. Um, also helping the other parent as well, who's the essentially the spousal caregiver. So it's just the conversation piece of how do we do this logistically? What are those conversations? And so that's really where they rely on me as a dementia care expert. How does this happen? How do we move forward with this? And I give them I give them ideas of what we've done in the past because it's not a one size fits all. It's not going there, sitting there, and and just asking all these questions right there, and them wanting to know well why are you asking me this? Who are you telling? So it's very it's individualized. 
so you do these assessments, right? And ultimately you come up with some recommendations, right? Based on the results. It's important for families to know about the level of engagement, areas of concern, but it's much more than that, right? Ultimately, what kind of recommendations come out of this? That's a great question. So when we look at recommendations, I really first want to know what the goal is of, of finding out this information. Is the goal so we can paint that picture so they can take it to their doctor? If maybe they're suspecting that there's a memory impairing disease or just something going on with their, their cognition? Or are they looking to not necessarily know that there is dementia? Maybe there already is a dementia diagnosis, but they're looking to see where they are level-wise. Are they in the early stages? Are we in the moderate stages? Are we in the later stages? Or maybe we're looking at, can this person live on their own? So when we're looking at, can they live on their own or function on their own? Then we're looking at the tests. I look at the tests as a whole big picture. I really like the, the judgment tests that they have. There's a couple different judgment tests. And really these questions some of them are very thought-provoking, and then there's a, a, a picture test as well where you get the, the loved one looking and answering these questions, and it gives a very good picture of this person, can they live alone? And so really painting that picture and not just deciding, can they live alone by just looking at them? There's actually concrete-based, science-based evidence here that's showing this is painting the picture that maybe something's going on that we need to look at other options, whether it's bringing a home care agency to help to kind of oversee, whether it's bringing an aging life care manager out to really get a, a list of, of resources that we need to pull in to maintain where they are cognitively and what's to come up, you know, as the future, as the future progresses through the disease process. So you're really talking about, you know, putting together a plan, putting together a care plan. And I, this is another thing, like we talk about this so often, it's a little embarrassing sometimes about the things that we didn't know, you know, like coming up with a care plan with a care manager was not something we ever did until our dad was moved into memory care. And we sat at the table and we did piles of paperwork talking about our dad, where he was in the process, what his background was, you know, what our family background was, that his mother also had Alzheimer's, you know, we talked about all that. But as far as putting a plan together, that plan was, was for how his level of care was going to be, take place within the memory care, right? We didn't really ever think that we could have been doing this while he was living at home and engage early on. So, you know, one thing that I really want families to hear from our conversation is that planning for care, it's never too soon to plan for care talking with someone like yourself or taking part in this kind of assessment allows families, whether they're really early in the stage, maybe they haven't gotten a diagnosis, maybe they have, but they can really begin to plan for what it's going to look like short-term and long-term. And I wonder when you do these assessments, when you're working with a family in, at Dementia Care Connections, do you repeat this assessment? Is it a one-time thing or do you go in and repeat and kind of get a new snapshot. Yes, actually we do. So I have some families I've worked with for a number of years, for I'm talking two or three years at a time, and really working, they're working with other professionals, whether they're working with a functional medicine doctor who sees them every six months. And so we're repeating, I'm repeating part of the test over at certain intervals, depending on what's going on and how we're using the results to really paint that picture uh, I have, I'll give you, for instance, I have a, a client that was working with a functional medicine doctor, seeing them on a routine basis every every three to six months to see. 
So we would repeat the BCAT test every couple months. So as they go to their doctor's appointments, they can see and show them this is how my scores are changing or how they're, how they're maintaining and stabilizing. So is it the engagement that we're doing uh, on a regular basis, the socialization? Is it part of their diet? Maybe they're using the Bredesen protocol. Yeah. What is it? And if it's all just staying the same and things are, are, are maintaining at a good baseline, it could be all of those things that they're doing. So at least they have an idea and some concrete numbers that are being associated when they go to their to their physician's office to, to go to their uh, appointment. So I do have some people that do that and we repeat. It's also a sense for them too, to just see where they are. How, how has judgment changed so we can get an idea of where things are headed? Uh, if they've scored very high in the beginning and now a couple of years later, we are looking at changes where we think that we're looking at a memory care situation or moving into an assisted living situation. We just have some concrete numbers to go by and a chart created on what, what some of our cognitive screenings using the different approaches of part of the, of the BCAT system, judgment, uh, the BCAT itself, uh, looking at your executive functioning, how that score is changing over, over, the, over the time as well. So I do like to repeat them. And typically when I repeat a test, I'll repeat it. If we're doing, if I'm seeing someone weekly for other things, I'll, I'll or for visits, I'll tie it in and we'll do a BCAT test now. And then the next session, a week later, we'll do the same BCAT test and we'll look at the changes in scores because like I said, not every every day is going to be the same for everybody, even for our own cognition. We might be a little a little fuzzy one day and the next day we're, we're on point. You know, I really wish that we, you know, that we knew to kind of engage early. We just, we we didn't, I don't, I don't know why we didn't look. I, and that's another puzzling thing. You know, you have like a family and everyone's like educate, highly educated and, and inquisitive. It's Sean and I in particular, like very curious. And we would look up the symptoms, right? So if he was having a specific thing or he started, his behavior started to get a little combative, we might go down that rabbit hole and kind of look. But we, we and, and, and I don't mean to speak just for myself, but, you know, we didn't really like think that there was ways that we could be engaging him and things that we could be doing to help enhance his quality of life. We were just worried that he was safe and that my mom could deal. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I think one of the things too, that we've really seen, you know, the socialization aspect, you think about socialization as a, as a quality of life measure too. Um, I think the pandemic really brought that full front. No one really thought about, okay, we're engaging them cognitively, whether it's through cognitive exercises or memory exercises or just the act of socialization itself. No one really thought about that until the pandemic as a, as a key until we saw that people were self-isolating. So when you talk about you know engaging in other aspects besides just keeping safe and keeping them fed and keeping them warm, there are the the socialization aspects too of it that are that just as important. And many people don't think about that. It's just not something that we, we tend to think about. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a great point on that, right? I mean, again, going back to our grandmother went through this too, and we were actually on a podcast uh, last week. And I mentioned, like, I remember going with my dad to New York and seeing my grandmother and we walked in her apartment in the Bronx and it's the middle of the day. All the shades were drawn. It was pitch dark and she was just sitting there, you know, 
And it's just a shocking, I still have that memory burned in my head, you know, and so picking backing on what Michelle said, you know, and one of the things that I, I say this on every podcast, and I don't, I don't mean to keep repeating myself, but there's so many things that we wish we would have known, right, when we went through this. And all this, these conversations we have just bring back so many memories. We're like, oh, gosh, like our parents were isolated down there. They used to be very social people, right? And then they became less and less social and to the point where they were completely isolated, just her my mom and my dad, you know, and that was one of the things that we, when we started talking to them, it's like, you're, you're three hours away from your closest children. Can't stay here, right? You either have to come to Virginia or you have to come to Texas, but you can't stay here. But if we had known about these tests and, and understanding kind of your point of socialization, you know, we, we could have planned out all kinds of activities to keep him engaged down there and maybe even slow down his progress a little bit, right? Because he would have been, you know, more mentally engaged and talking to other people and, you know, tools like assessments that allow professionals like yourself to educate families on how to engage with their loved ones, you know, are so important. And I just wish we had known about it back then. It's hard. I mean, we, I tend to look at uh, how we care for my own mother through her journey and her uh, cognitive impairment as well. And it, the same thing, you, you know, you're in it. I'm, I'm in the field. I do it all the time, but there's always something you go, man, I wish I would have thought of that at the time. I think it's just human nature for ourselves. It's almost like we, we beat ourselves up just a little bit, but we, here's the thing. We did the best we could with the information we had in the situation we were in at the time. And, and so that's a, that's the way I keep going and thinking, okay, the things I would have done, Maybe I can help the next family and thinking about that ahead of time and having a little, a little uh, foresight to think of it ahead of time. Which is really why we have all of these conversations. Exactly. This is why we do it, right? Because everything we learn every time and every time we're like, oh, we would have known this. We would have known that, you know, and, and now people can, right? Because we have access to the, these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. So, Nicole, your business, Dementia Care Connections, um, has offices in Kansas and the greater D.C. area, but you also offer other services for families across the country that you can do virtually, do you not? I do. So we can do consultations by Zoom. I think one of the things that the pandemic did bring to us is the opportunity to realize that people can do video conferences. It's It seemed like uh you know, such a far-fetched idea if we think about prior to the pandemic. So the long-distance caregiving, that aspect, I have families that really just want to run situations by me. Some want to think about non-pharmacological approaches to maintaining uh, their quality of life or also to look at a behavior or an unmet need is the way I put it, an unmet need. And how can we, how can we move past this unmet need that we're challenged with all the time not using traditional medications, so just using non-pharmacological approaches. So I get a lot of scenario questions where families call and want virtual con consultations. They also just want to know about the disease. So they, they want a one-on-one -on -one person to help educate them on why things are happening to their loved one in their brain and why are they acting like this and why is the response this and how can I change my communication with my loved one? So with the sense of families, I do a lot of long distance caregiving in that sense, if they're not living there and helping them, or just a lot of consultations. I also do uh, video 
activity visit. So that's typically for those that are in the earlier stages, it's got to be someone who can do a one-on-one session. But I have clients where I do art history discussions once a week, as that's our cognitive engagement session. And it's really exciting. And I get to pick the topic each time and I and we, we go and have a conversation and, and tie in some reminiscence and some learning, some new information. So activity visits, as I put it, it it's so much more than that. It's, it's really a discussion and an engagement session one-on-one. So the virtual, the virtual platforms have been really great for that and just showing that we, we can do that with those that are living with, with a cognitive impairment or dementia. You mentioned for the family. So I also work with a lot of professional groups, you know, training home care agencies and training other entities that are in the, in the industry, because a lot of people, as we know, they're great at keeping their clients safe and warm and, and fed but the engagement piece is really lacking. So I put together a lot of programs where I'm working with them one-on-one or working on them in group sessions for being a dementia training coach. You know, that I really think the greatest silver lining that came out of the pandemic was the ability to do things virtually because that's another thing, you know, 10 years ago, our, our dad passed away 10 years ago. And at that time, you know, you we weren't video conferencing and we weren't doing things like this, you know, but you now can engage with adult children and family that's out of town, especially if you're local, right? Because you can kind of report back to the family and they kind of feel like they have boots on the ground, um, even though they may be far away, which is, you know, one of the great things that came out of the pandemic for sure. I agree with you. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the Washington DC area. I'm in Kansas, but I have my team that's in the Washington DC area that essentially they're the ones going doing the daily visits. And then as families want consultations, we're, we're meeting together in a virtual space from all over the country and sometimes even internationally. And it's a great way for us to all, just like we are um, when we do video Zoom sessions, all looking at each other and being able to, to feel like we're just in a conference room together, really talking about this. How are we going to navigate this journey together? The last few years have been a struggle, but they it's opened up so many opportunities to do things. I mean, our whole foundation kind of strategy changed during the pandemic. And I think it's a much more sound approach to what we're doing. And it never would have happened, you know, without the pandemic. So there's definitely a silver lining. So Nicole, we're so glad you joined us today. This is again, we learned so much. And this is why we do it, right? Is to to learn more and get you get people to have conversations and help them. And so we're going to include a link to your website. Uh, as well as a link to read more about the BCAT test system in our show notes. We'd love to have you back to talk about long-distance caregiving support and activity visits. That's a really big conversation that we have within our community because we have so many long-distance caregivers and adult children that are trying to support their mom or their dad who's supporting their other parent, like we did, like what we went through. And there's, there's just not enough time today. So we definitely want to have you back and, and have a conversation about that. I think that would be great. I, I'm glad you're going to include the, the BCAT approach and the test system on the website because there's some really great working memory exercise books that professionals can utilize. And also there's a home edition. So families can order books from there as well about uh, you know working memory exercise books they could have and work and, and progress through on their own. So I think it's a great resource just for family to know about. Yeah. And if you have any white papers or things like that, that you want us to link to, we'll put that in there too. Because I, I think anything that we can get people to start understanding this is, is really, really useful. That sounds great. I'm so glad I was able to, to be a part of this. I thank you so much for that. 
Absolutely. So again, thank you so much for your time today. We encourage our listeners to share this podcast with friends or families who may benefit from hearing about cognitive assessments or any of the other topics. And if you haven't subscribed to Eye on the Caregiver podcast, please do and send us a review. That can really be helpful to us too. Nicole, again, Sean and I both thank you so much for joining us. And we can't wait to get this episode out and and to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Nicole. Take care. Thanks for listening. For more resources and information, visit windwardfoundation.org. 